one of the pastors here at SOMA. Uh, if you're new or perhaps uh, in the Midwest, it's more accurate to say new again uh, to the church scene, to Jesus, to Christianity, uh, this is a Sunday uh, where we specifically focus on uh, the declaration that the tomb is empty and that the resurrection of Jesus is the central reality, not only of uh, Christianity, not only for religious people, um, but it's the turning point, really, you could say, for all of human history. And so we celebrate this every week, so I want to encourage you, come back. Uh, Jesus is still out of the grave next week. Um, and so if this is something, I know I grew up uh, going to church, kind of like one of those CEO religious people, Christmas and Easter only. And so if that's you, like, we're so glad that you're here, and, and we want to just welcome you, and we know that um, people are on different points in their journey. And I know that many of you may have questions about, uh, about the faith, about Jesus, and about Christianity and, and, and again, like this is a moment where lots of people are asking very honest questions about uh, religion, about faith, about the supernatural. And, and maybe you've ha- you have questions about uh, what you hear about faith and how, that, how you reconcile that with, with gender or with sexuality or with power structures, right? Everybody's talking about institutional power and how we think about the corruption of the church. And, and those are all very honest, good questions to be asking. But I would submit to you the question that we're going to answer this morning, we're seeking to answer together this morning, is the most important one. Like, I, I want to encourage you to kind of push those out to the peripheral this morning and really just ask yourself these two questions. One, is the tomb empty? That's actually three, uh, kind of part A and part B. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is, is it a historical fact? Did it really happen? Can we trust it? Is it not only plausible, but, but credible? Um, and, 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 and is it compelling that Jesus rose from the dead. And then the second question is, if he did, what does it matter? Like, what difference does it make in your life? How is it changing you? Because it's not so, so, supposed to be just this myth or a fable or some children's story that you read, uh, you know, and it's like, oh, that's kind of interesting um, in the same way that like a children's story would be interesting. No, this is, this is something that's supposed to change our lives. And so um, we find ourselves this morning, we're going to read from Matthew chapter 28. I want to invite you to, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one. And let me just bring you up to speed on the Gospel of Matthew. The, this, this is written by um, actually a person, a historical person named Matthew, who was writing an autobiographical account of the life of Jesus. He is an eyewitness, and he's interviewing other eyewitnesses to the life and teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. And his central claim in the book of Matthew up to this point has been that Jesus is a rabbi, he is a teacher, right? So we have these this beautiful uh, Sermon on the Mount, perhaps one of the, the greatest pieces of literature in Western civilization in all times and all places. And Jesus begins to unpack in the Sermon on the Mount the, the kingdom of God, the, the peace of God, the shalom of God, this vision for the world that we ache for, right? The world that we existentially, morally, philosophically, personally, just we long for this, this vision of shalom, this vision of flourishing to come to the world. That's what Jesus came to teach about. But he was more, Matthew says, than just a rabbi. He wasn't less, but he was more. He was not just an enlightened spiritual guru. He claimed to be the Messiah, and he claimed to be the king who's come to bring the kingdom of God into the world, to bring God's justice to a world of injustice, to bring hope to a world of cynicism and despair, to bring joy to a world of sadness sorrow. And so we left Jesus on Friday, from, the, from a narrative standpoint, we left Jesus on Good Friday buried, dead, hope is lost, 
darkness seems to be reigning. Everything that they had hoped would come true didn't. So we pick it up here in Matthew chapter 28 with Matthew's account of the resurrection. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he is risen as he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So two questions I want us to consider this morning in our time together. One, why do we believe this happened? Secondly, what difference does it make if it did happen for us today? First, why do we believe this happened? I know that some of us in this room, we come with family, we come with friends, a coworker drug us here, somebody told us there was brunch here, and we got, kind of got bamboozled into this uh, Sunday, and so we're like surprised at the church. Um, but, but I want to welcome you if you're, if you're here and you're a skeptic, if you're a questioner, if you're a doubter. We want Soma to always be a place where we can ask human questions about what it means to live in the tension of faith, right? That's the tension that we find ourselves in, is asking these questions and seeking truth, seeking understanding. And I think for some of us, you're hard-pressed to find like a raging group of atheists in Indianapolis. I think what, what I would say characterizes probably religion in the Midwest more than anything is that we're just indifferent and apathetic about the claims of Jesus, right? Uh, in the words of Jessica Meisner, whose famous kind of uh, deconversion essay went viral in BuzzFeed a few years ago, she said... Um, I wouldn't describe, my, describe myself as an agnostic. That's too strong of a word. She said, it's more that I'm apathetic. I think Christianity isn't real, but I miss believing it was real. 
In the words of the Catholic sociologist Charles Taylor, who wrote uh, just a tome about secularism, he says, we live in a world that is haunted by uh, Jesus, haunted by religion, haunted by God. It's almost like this zombie that though we try to press it down and though we've been enlightened and we got a college education or a doctorate, it just won't go away. We just find ourselves continually drawn back to the reality of God. And if that's you, I'm glad that you're here. Because I want you to know that we believe this is true. Like, you were probably invited here by somebody who believes that the resurrection is true and that they're probably saying to you, this has changed my life. And the reason they're saying that is because they, we, believe there is compelling evidence and compelling experience from believing that truth. It's not because we're gullible. It's not because... We're less educated than you. It's not because we're less intelligent than you or that we're psychologically predisposed to just need the opiate of the masses, to quote a famous writer. We believe these things are true. And it was just as much a surprise to the early disciples of Jesus that Jesus got up out of the grave, that he came back from the dead. Now, for different reasons than for our kind of... uh, post-industrial, enlightened, kind of technocratic society, the world we live in, but, but they were just as surprised. So here are these words from an ancient Near East scholar. What the Jewish leaders did in the story is not different from what generations of skeptics have done ever since. Don't be fooled by the idea that modern science has disproved the resurrection of Jesus. Modern science has done no such thing. Everybody in the ancient world just like everybody in the modern world, knew perfectly well that dead people don't get resurrected. It didn't take Copernicus or Newton or Einstein, for that matter, to prove that. Just universal observation of universal facts. And I would argue people in the pre-modern world were much more acquainted with the reality of death and what happens at death than we are. Saw it every day. The Christian belief, then, is not that some people sometimes get raised from the dead and that Jesus happens to be one of them. It is precisely that people don't ever get raised from the dead and that something new has happened in and through Jesus, which has blown a hole through previous observations. The Christian thus agrees with scientists, ancient and modern. Yes, dead people don't rise. But the Christian goes on to say that something new and different has now occurred in the case of Jesus. This isn't because there was an odd glitch in the cosmos or something peculiar about Jesus' biochemistry, but because the God who made the world and who called Israel to be the bearer of his rescue operation for the world was at work in and through Jesus to remake the world. The resurrection was the dramatic launching of this project. How do we know, why do we believe that the resurrection actually happened. A couple of things. I'll throw these up on the screen. Let me just give you a couple. And there are many, I think, compelling reasons, but these are among them that we see here in this passage. First, the empty tomb, right? Everybody, Christian and non-Christian, secular historian, religious sociologists, all agree on one fact. The tomb is empty. To this day, the body of Jesus has never been found right? There's no shrine around the tomb of Jesus. Nobody's ever seen the body of Jesus. It doesn't exist. There is still an empty tomb. 
And what's crazy about this is sometimes people get the, the idea that the, the Gospels were written centuries after the life of Jesus. And basically, his disciples thought he was like a great moral teacher. And then over time, it's kind of like a game of telephone or like, you know, whisper down the alley. Somebody said something and somebody else said something. And all of a sudden, like people generations later, oh, Jesus is Lord, right? Uh, but no, like Matthew was written Every scholar believes Matthew was written within a couple of decades, within the lifetime of everybody who would have been reading this letter. It's a historical biography. So everyone who saw this would have still been living when this letter was read and proclaimed all over the ancient world. And that's why first John, John, one of his other disciples, would go on to say, hey, the reason we believe is not because we're gullible. It's not because it was some kind of myth. It's not like we saw him. We, we, we touched him. We smelled his breath, right? Like we were there with Jesus, risen from the dead, and we can't do anything but proclaim it to you. It could have been easily discredited, and Christianity would have never, never gone on to be the world-changing influence it has been without the empty tomb. First thing. Second thing, the women at the tomb. Like notice verse 1, after the Sabbath, who are the first people to see Jesus. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. Now, now in our world, that doesn't mean a lot to us. Um, we're fighting for the equality of women. It doesn't, but in the ancient world, as a very patriarchal society. Women uh, were not considered even legitimate or reliable legal witnesses. They couldn't give testimony in a court of law. They were very much marginalized in this cultural moment. And so if you were writing a story, a hero story, and you were kind of asking yourself as a writer, what would give the most traction to the story, the most plausibility and credibility to the story? You would not make women the heroes of the story. You just wouldn't. It would be laughed at. It would be scoffed at because women had no value in that culture. And yet what we see in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first people to the grave were women. So maybe, just maybe, the reason that they would do something so quote-unquote, embarrassing and humiliating as right women in to be the heroes of the story is because that's actually what happened. They actually went to the tomb and saw it for themselves. Third thing, this, I, I'm amazed, I don't know if you're amazed, I'm amazed at the surprise of the disciples, right? Like, they're not like, oh yeah, Jesus, we've been waiting for you. Like, you know, where have you been for the last, like, you know, three days? We've been sitting on Galilee. No, every single one of them is shocked that Jesus is risen from the dead. Notice in verse 17, and I hope this gives you so much encouragement if you're a person asking deep questions about the faith. Some worshiped him. So they saw him, physically saw him risen from the dead. Some worshiped and some doubted. The word there is literally hesitated. They hesitated to throw themselves into the worship of Jesus. Why? Well, you have to understand the Jewish mindset, right? The Jew, in the Jewish world, they believed in two ages. The present age, an age of decay and injustice and oppression, like the, the, kind of the world that we live in now. And then they believed in what they called the age to come, right? That the Messiah would come, the King of Israel would come. Based on all kinds of prophecies and miracles in the Old Testament, the King would come back. He would redeem and rescue his people. He was to be a political king, not just a religious king, a political king. And when he came and he delivered people, he would usher in a new kingdom, kingdom of shalom, a kingdom of flourishing, a kingdom of peace, again, the world that we all long for. And at that point, then, the new reign would begin. 
what nobody in the Jewish world would have ever expected, what no rabbi would have ever taught, is that God would come into the middle of history and would die and would rise again, that one person, not everyone, one person would come and die and rise again right in the middle of history. That's why they were so shocked. It was, to quote one uh, scholar, a wonderful surprise. It was out of left field. It was what J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of The Lord of the Rings, called uh, the great eucatastrophe, right? A happy twist, a happy turn into the otherwise tragedy of life in the ancient Roman and Greco-Roman world. Jesus enters into that, and they, like us, are surprised. Fourth thing we see is that it totally changes them. Notice Jesus sends out these men who just a few days later were cowards, right? They all ran. Remember, they all betrayed Jesus. They all ran. That's where we are on Good Friday. Basically, everybody scatters. And then on Sunday, all of a sudden, Jesus rises from the dead. He sends them out. And then we read the book of Acts. These men become the pillars of the church, right? Failures of the church a couple days earlier, pillars of the church moving forward in the book of Acts. They're transformed into men who are courageous, who lay down their lives for a myth. Ten of these men would go on to be martyrs for the faith. What happened? Could it be that they actually saw the risen Jesus? The last thing is um, the historical impact of Jesus. I find it really compelling beyond this story what happened, that Jesus was the turning point really of all, uh, you could say Western history for sure, but I would say all human history, right? Like time has been organized around the birth of Jesus, Right, for the first time, Thomas Cahill, who's a um, religious scholar, uh, Jewish scholar, he wrote a book called The Gift of the Jews. And in this book, he, he talks about um, how in the Bible, um, there was something happening, a transition that was happening in Judeo and then later Christian thought when you read the, the Bible, that all of life, basically before Ju- Judeo-Christian thought, uh, moved in cycles. It was cyclical, right? So you think about seasons move, summer and winter. Life is basically what they called the great wheel. You live, you die. There's no beginning to time. There's no end to time. History is meaningless. There's no idea of progress in the future, right? Like in the ancient world before the Bible, before Jesus, there was no idea of progress and future and modernity. It was just this hopeless cycle of life, right? It's like Simba, right? It's like the circle of life, and it moves us all, and we're all just kind of powerless to the forces outside of us. And he says what changed with the Jews, if you read the stories of the Bible, which, which find their kind of climax in Jesus, is for the first time now, we have a linear progression. We have the future is going to be different than the past. We have time has a beginning and human beings are created with intrinsic value and worth and dignity, that there's an end to history and that God himself is speaking and intervening into the great wheel of despair and he is bringing life and purpose and meaning and transcendence and beauty and love, all the things that we long for. So go beyond that now, and Cahill mentions this. There are other scholars who've also mentioned this Um, One in particular, an Indian intellectual named Vishali Mangalwald has a great book called The Book That Made Your World. And he actually goes on to argue that the modern West would not exist without the resurrection of Jesus. Like everything that we care about in the modern West ultimately traces its roots back, not to the enlightenment, but actually to the resurrection of Jesus. Where do you think human dignity comes from? It did not come from the ancient Greeks, Greco-Romans. 
Where do you think equality came from? Human rights comes from. Justice, reason, freedom, technology, science. Mangalwald and others have argued that without the resurrection of Jesus, this whole project that we call the progressive vision, democracy, capitalism, even communism, all themselves would be impossible without the hope for a better future. The first time in human history people ever begin to think about the future, about a sense of destiny, about a sense of calling, about the fact that they carried individual worth and value. He says that all comes from Christianity. And so while it's true that we look out in the world and we see injustice, and that causes some of us to say, without justice, there can't be a God. I would argue that the reverse of that is also true. Without God, there's no possibility of justice. And so these are some of the compelling reasons why we believe that these things are true. The question that we want to ask, though, also is not just why do we believe it, but what difference does it make in the world? Right? What difference does it make for us? And this is where I think it really hits us where we are right now, especially as a society, right? Because there's kind of two competing narratives or stories that are being told about the future of the world. In some ways, you could argue right now, more than any other time in the last couple of centuries, and certainly in the kind of Enlightenment project, that we're, we're all kind of caught in the middle of this civil war of ideas. And there's two kind of visions for the future of the world. One is what I'll call dystopian regression. Dystopian regression just basically means that the world is coming apart at the seams, right? The secular project is not working for people. Like all these promises about prosperity and what was going to happen when we got enlightened, it's all beginning to break down and it's creating tidal waves of fear and cynicism and outrage and polarization and oppression and exhaustion, right? Like, are we tired as a, as, a, as a society right now? Tired, besieged. One book that just totally captured this kind of nihilism for me was a, a lady named Jamie Mortara. She actually came and read some poetry here in Indianapolis just recently. And here's uh, the title of her book. I thought you might get a kick out of this. Everyone can paint their nails because gender is imaginary. Everything is meaningless. Love is a myth. Sex is gross. We all die alone, and our stupid bodies will soon return to the dust from whence they came. Now, if that doesn't capture how many people feel right now, I don't know what was. Not, maybe not in the church, because sometimes we like to click our heels and pretend like there's no place like home, but this is how the world feels right now. I, th- I find it interesting, too, that she quotes Genesis at the end of that title. The other story that's being told is the opposite story. Some people looking at the same data say, no, no, the world's not getting better. Researchers are actually showing that depending on your metrics, the world has never been better, right? I would call this utopian progression, right? That utopia is almost here. This view is represented by men like Steven Pinker, who wrote a book called Enlightenment Now, and Johann Norberg, who wrote a book called Progress. Um, In his book Progress, Norberg cites 10 areas that they research, so food, Sanitation, life expectancy, poverty, the environment, violence, literacy, freedom, equality. And he says, by every metric that we can look at, we are actually, as a, as a global society, at an all-time high. Does that surprise you? Did you know that in the last decade, he says, last two decades, we've cut global poverty in half. Did you know that most adults in the West live at levels now as young adults that their parents didn't live at in their 50s or 60s or ever? 
Like, so much has changed when you look at the world. And so they're making this argument. It's a more optimistic argument about the world, right? Like, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And uh, that was kind of the world of, like, Orwell's 1984, if any of you remember that book, Huxley's Brave New World. And there were all these dystopian films about the future of the city. Like, you ever watched the movie Blade Runner? Like, I know I'm going over most of our millennials here, but Blade Runner, it was like this, like, the city's going to burn and, like, Terminator, like, the world's going to end in, like, 2019, and so, like, the city's just going to become the cesspool, so, like, everybody moves out to the suburbs and and gets their half an acre, and, like, the city just, you know, kind of goes up in flames. You know what's interesting is none of that came true. Like, it didn't come true. What's actually happened is the the repopulation and the regentrification of and the reurbanization of the city, right? So now we look out at Midtown, and we have, we're excited because we have rapid transit, you know, red lines coming to the city, And we have the newest, coolest brunch spots. And we have coffee shops where you can get your organic cashew milk cortado for $12 and your craft donut for $5 if you can afford it, right? Like if you can actually afford to live there. We've created what one author calls the beautiful world. The beautiful world where everything's clean, everything's nice, everything is awesome, everything's amazing, everything works perfectly, everybody's living harmoniously in utopia. This author goes on to say that we've attempted in the last couple decades to bring the kingdom without the king. We've attempted to create heaven on earth. What we want is the beautiful world, but what we don't want is God in the middle telling us what to do and messing it all up. God, we've got this. Thank you very much. And here's the reality. Like when you look at both of these narratives, the the pessimist and the optimist, Both are partially true, and yet both are woefully inadequate and incomplete. It's not the way that we experience the world. It's not completely God-awful, and it's not completely utopia. For most of us, it's probably somewhere in the middle. I would say you could argue we're progressing technologically and materially, but we're regressing relationally, spiritually, and emotionally, right? Like, there's something in us that knows that the world is not as bad as it could be, that it's not going to hell in a handbasket, because we still ache and long for beauty. We, we have art museums, right, because we believe in beauty. We long for transcendence. We long for meaning and for purpose. But underneath all of that, right, like, read somebody like David, David Foster Wallace. Underneath all of that is this inconsolable sadness, an inconsolable angst. We still suffer, and we don't know what to do about it. Our cities are full of people struggling, despite their education, despite their wealth, despite their prosperity, despite the smiles, despite their Instagram feeds, struggling with anxiety, racked with anxiety, taking and doubling down on prescription medication, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. We see racial tension that looks like pre-Vietnam War, pre-civil rights. We see the breakdown of the family. We feel fragile financially. We experience systemic, multi-generational poverty. And though we have this beautiful world in Midtown that's available to people, it's only available to some who can afford to pay for the $12 cashew milk. Those are the stories. And into that, Jesus offers a third story. The resurrection story, right? He offers resurrection. The dawning of the age of joy, not fear. That's what Jesus is offering us. He says to his disciples over and over and over again, don't be afraid. 
I am back from the dead. I've risen from the dead. If it's true that I'm risen from the dead, you have nothing to fear. You have no one to prove yourself to, right? You don't need a beautiful world. You need a beautiful Savior, a perfect Savior, who's come to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And that is why there's an explosion of joy and worship, right? Because now we have the power and the authority, all authority in heaven and earth given to me. We have the authority of the king himself who laid down his life for us. And it's kind of a more pessimistic and a more optimistic vision of the world than both the ones I just laid out. It's more pessimistic because this says, yeah, you know what? The world is broken. But here's the thing. The main problem with the world is not a lack of education. It's not political primarily. It's not about gender issues primarily. Those are symptoms of something deeper. The reality is the human heart is broken. The reality is the darkness is inside of us, not just outside of us. That the injustice that we decry and we protest against, very real in the world, starts in the human heart because we have hearts that are sinful. We have desires that are bent and disordered on ourselves. We are all about me. Like, I am all about me. We are all about we. And so that's the problem that has to get fixed. And that's the very thing that Jesus came to fix. His resurrection is a promise that I've come to take away your sin. I've come to give you a new heart. I've come to restore your past, to give you a new present and a new future, to give you hope, to give you joy that can't be taken away depending on how much money you make or where you live in the city or what somebody says about your gender, your sexuality, your financial situation. I've come because I am. There's an old world that is passing away and there's a new world that's being born a world of joy. And in the resurrection, Jesus gives us, I would argue, what we need the most. He says, I'll be with you to the end. What we most long for and yet what we most fear is to be known by God, to be loved by our creator. You are my child. I am with you. I am for you. I have done everything that's required for you to be right, to be whole to be liberated. That is the story of the resurrection. We cannot have the kingdom without the king. The king is the best part, right? Like, I don't, I mean, just at some point, you can't brunch your way to happiness. You, like, you can't run your way to happiness. You can't exercise your way to happiness. It just breaks down. And all of us one day will get old and we will die, or we will get cancer and we will die. Like, happy Easter, right? Like, but that's the reality. We will die. And you can't solve it with a new app, with a new relationship, with a new house, with a new project. You just can't. And so the resurrection says, hey, I'm here. I've given everything for you to bring you into the story. You have nothing to fear, and I will be with you, and I will be for you until the very end. We get into that good news by simply repenting, Jesus says, turn away from this life of self-centered, disordered desire, and then turn to me, believe in me, trust in me, right? He's reversing Eden, where they didn't trust God, and they tried to be their own gods. And he's saying, believe in me, follow me, right? Don't just give me intellectual assent. Bank your life on me. Organize your life and your soul and your reality around me. And he says, I will liberate you. He who knows me knows the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is the good news, right? Good news of the resurrection. He is risen. He is risen indeed, and he's come to make us new. Let's pray.